Good morning, my name is Esme and I'm a member here at Mullins Church and I'm going to be reading God's word for us this morning. And our reading today is from Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 22, and you can find it inside your notice sheets. Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside, knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Thank you, Esme. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to everyone uh, on, on site here and online as well. It's great to be with you. Uh, and I'd like to start by asking you a question. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? I know, I know. It's a horrible question. Uh, you might have been asked it in interviews and not been quite sure what to say. I think people tend to fall into one of two groups, really. You might be sort of bullish and confident, like the type of person who goes on The Apprentice, and you say something like, I see myself doing your job while standing on the bodies of my vanquished enemies. <laughs> or perhaps, maybe like most of us, you're really not sure at all. Anything could happen, you're not really sure you're right for this job or whether you can do it, and you certainly don't feel like you're going to be the CEO anytime soon. What about if we ask this question, where do you see our world in five years' time? Again, you could fall into those two groups. You could fully buy into the myth of human progress that we were thinking about last week and assume that in five years we'll be healthier, happier, fairer, richer, free from coronavirus and living our best lives. Or perhaps the events of 2020 have meant you're a bit less optimistic. Perhaps you're not quite prophesying the end of Western civilization and life in a post-apocalyptic dystopia, but perhaps you're not far off. So how about this? Where do you see the church in five years' time? I think if we're honest, fewer of us would instinctively put ourselves into the first group when we answer that question. We hear the narrative in our media that church attendance is declining. Uh, we fear the impact of the pandemic and the financial fallout. We've had a few people leave our church over the summer. There are some denominations in the US are forecasting that when they fully reopen, churches will have lost 30 to 40% of their membership. 
And that's starting from quite a low base here in the UK. The average size of a congregation in the Church of England, for example, is 27 people. And so perhaps we can sympathize with the question that Jesus is presented with in our passage today. As we start the passage, Luke reminds us of the context of this stage of Jesus' ministry. He is, we're told in verse 18, going through the towns, sorry, verse 22, going through the towns and villages, teaching as he makes his way to Jerusalem. He's been heading to Jerusalem since chapter 9, and he's been very clear with his disciples that he's going to be killed there. That will be the place of his departure, his exodus, his death. And as well as that, he's just been comparing the kingdom of God to something rather small and unimpressive, a mustard seed, a bit of yeast. Yes, Jesus has healed a few people, but, but not everyone. Yes, Jesus has gathered a few disciples, but not many. Yes, there are crowds around him wherever he goes, but we know what crowds are like. And we're going to read later in Luke that those crowds are not committed to him. Like most crowds, they gather very quickly and disperse very quickly too. Hence the question that comes anonymously from the crowd. Verse 23, he's asked, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Is this always going to be a small thing? Will it forever be a few dwindling people? Should we expect the church will always be small and shrinking? That's a good question. A question we might want the answer to as well. And at the end of the passage, Jesus is going to directly answer that question. But first, he gives a picture which turns the question on its head and shines the spotlight back onto us. Let's explore Jesus' picture together then. And the first thing he says is that the door is narrow. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Do you see how Jesus shifts the focus of the question here? The questioner was essentially asking about everybody else. How many other people will be saved? Will it be few? Will it be many? But Jesus turns the tables. Look, never mind about everyone else, he says. What about you? In fact, in the original Greek, all these verbs are plural. He's not just replying to the one questioner. He's using this opportunity to talk to the crowd who are following him through the towns and villages to Jerusalem. What about all of you, he asks. And the point he makes is very simple. Don't worry about everyone else or the numbers of people who are or aren't saved. Make sure you're in. Make every effort, he says, to get through the door. Now, that's not an unexpected metaphor. Very often the kingdom of God, the new creation hope of a world under God's rule where all suffering and sickness and sin are banished is often described in terms of a welcome into a home. Indeed, a welcome into a great banqueting hall, into a feast. In your own time, you could look at Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8 for a beautiful example of that. Entering the kingdom of God is like walking into the door of a house and being invited to sit down at a great banquet. And Jesus says to his questioner and to all those listening, never mind everyone else, make sure your name is on the guest list. Because as he says, there will be some who will not be allowed in. And we're going to see why and how it is that some people can strive to get through this door and not be admitted in a minute. But first, I just want to focus on the word Jesus uses to describe the door, to describe the entrance to this great new creation feast, which is the kingdom of God. He calls it narrow. Now, there's a word that has often been applied to the Christian faith, but most of the time it's meant as a critique. 
The faith is narrow, and that's a bad thing. The Christian claim is an exclusive one. It says that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to be saved. If it simply said that Jesus was our way to God, one of the ways to God, no one would have any problem with it. But as soon as you say this is the only way, the sole path to salvation from God's judgment, to right relationship with God, and the promise of a good future with him, Well, that is a very offensive claim to make in our culture. Actually, it's offensive in any culture. But in our day, when freedom of individual expression and tolerance and acceptance of different ideas are such important virtues to our thinking, the Christian claim to exclusivity can seem completely unacceptable. How dare you say that your faith is the only way? How dare you say that every other claim to fellowship with God is wrong? How can you be so intolerant? How can you be so narrow? Perhaps you're not a Christian uh, with us here this morning. Welcome if that's you. We're really glad you're here. But perhaps this is one of the reasons you're not a Christian. It's the narrowness of it, the intolerance of it, the exclusivity of it. Perhaps you don't understand why we're so insistent that entrance to the kingdom of God is this way and this way alone. Or perhaps you are a Christian and you've felt the pain of trying to explain this to someone and you've got the riposte. How can you be so narrow? How can you be so narrow-minded? How can you be so intolerant? If that's you, I just want you to see a couple of things from the passage this morning. The first is just to note that if you have a problem with Christianity's apparent narrowness, Your problem's with Jesus. He comprehensively, unashamedly owns this language. The door is narrow, he says. When Christians have talked about the exclusive truth claims of their faith, we haven't made that up. We're relating what Jesus himself has said. Now that might cause you to think that it's not just Christians who are intolerant, but the founder of their religion too, and you want no part in it. But before you write this off, consider this with me. That there are some situations where narrowness, exclusivity, limited options is something we all want. Imagine uh, with me for a moment that we are aboard a beautiful, luxury cruise liner. Admittedly, this year, that's perhaps not where we want to be, but, but let's imagine we're there. Ocean-going cruise liner, some rich relative has bought us tickets, and we're in the main banqueting hall of the ship. And before us is a beautiful buffet of delicious food. And we say to the crew, well, what what am I allowed to eat? And the crew say to us, whatever you want. Go wild, have whatever you fancy. There are no rules, there's no judgment, just express yourself. Fantastic, that's what we want, isn't it? You mean I can have three steaks, one on top of the other, and then put chocolate pudding on top of that, and that's okay. And they say, that's fine, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. And in that case, there's an occasion where individual expression is a wonderful gift, isn't it? What a treat. But now imagine you hear a loud bang from below decks. And let's imagine the year is 1912 and the name of the ship is Titanic. And we realize we've hit an iceberg and the boat is sinking. And we run to the crew and we ask, what should we do? And they say, do you know whatever you fancy? There's no rules. There's no judgment here. We want to hear from you. How do you want to be saved from this? Let's explore this together. Come up with your own ideas. We wouldn't want to stifle your individual expression. In that situation, that is not what we want, is it? In that situation, what we want is narrowness. We want exclusivity. We want limited options. We want to be told, right, this is the way to be saved. The lifeboats are over there. Go that way and get in them. No, not that way, that way. That's what we want. 
And if we were told that, we wouldn't criticize the crew for their intolerance and their infringement on our personal expression. We wouldn't say to them, but what if I think the lifeboats are over there? No. We would thank them and we would do what they said. You see, Jesus is being asked about salvation. This isn't a matter of opinion or preference or personal taste or individual expression. This is a matter of life and death. He's just been speaking about the judgment of God that is coming on a rebellious world. He's just been talking about the bonds of Satan which keep this world captive and which he has claimed to be able to free people from and has demonstrated that he can free people from. He's been speaking about how God's kingdom will one day be seen to be the only one that lasts and the only one that matters and how all other pretend kingdoms will be swept away. This is life and death. And so perhaps we've been focused on the wrong word. That's my fault because I told you which word to focus on. But we've been narrowly focusing on the word narrow because that's the word that grabs our attention. But perhaps the word we should have been focusing on is the word door. Jesus is saying, there are some lifeboats. There is a door. There is a way to be saved. Despite our sin and rebellion, despite the fact that we've ignored God and mistreated him and mistreated his people, there is a door. And it's a door that will be opened by what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem, where he will die under the judgment of God that we deserved so that we don't have to, so we can be forgiven when we didn't deserve it. So that we who have rebelled against Jesus can miraculously enter his banqueting hall and take our place at the everlasting feast. The fact that there is only one way might offend us. But I want to suggest this morning that the fact that there is any way at all ought to amaze us. But that might cause us to wonder. So what does Jesus mean by make every effort then to enter the narrow door? If there is a way to be saved... And there is only one way to be saved. How do I get in? Especially as Jesus has just said that there are many who will try to get in and not be able to. Why not? What did they do wrong? And what should we do instead? Well, that's what we're going to see as Jesus goes on to tell us that the door will close. Read with me from verse 25. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer... I don't know you or where you come from. We see here very clearly why it is that some people strive to enter but don't get in. The picture isn't of people standing pleading before an open door and being refused entry. No, the picture we're given is that the party has started, the guests have sat down at the banquet, the door is closed and people have turned up too late. Clearly they expect to be let in anyway. They knock on the door and they say, come on, we're here, open up but it's too late. The door is already closed. I wonder if you've ever had uh, the experience of turning up to something at the wrong time. One of our staff members, who will remain nameless, told me that uh, when they went on holiday to the States, they accidentally set the wrong time zone on their watch, which meant that they were um, uh, out by an hour, uh, which meant that they were 55 minutes late to absolutely everything for a week, every meal, every appointment, while constantly apologising for being five minutes early didn't seem to correct themselves over the course of this week, just seemed to plough on with that. You can ask Joe why later. Or uh, perhaps you go out to the anniversary meal or turn up for the concert or arrive at the hotel only to be told you've come too late. And you can also ask Joe apparently about all those three of those things as well. 
your ticket says that you should have been here three hours ago, or yesterday, or last week. And there you are. You had your heart set on a wonderful evening. You turned up confidently expecting a warm welcome. But it ends with you standing outside in the cold and rain, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Well, the people in Jesus' picture here have turned up too late and they're left outside. But we need to see that the main problem they've had is not some administrative error, like booking on the wrong day. No, the problem they've had is a relational error. The master of the house says to them, I just just don't know you. I don't know who you are and I don't know where you're from. It should be noted that as soon as Jesus says this, these excluded people raise an objection. Verse 26. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But we do know you, these people claim. We had meals with you, and we heard you teach. And it is worth saying, actually, in Luke's gospel, those are really important things. Jesus has been eating with sinners, welcoming them into fellowship and friendship with him. And all the way through his ministry, Jesus has been stressing the importance of listening to his teaching. So these people say to Jesus, well, well look, we, we sort of did what you said. We, we do have a relationship with you, don't we? We ate with you. We heard your teaching. What more do you want? See, these are people who genuinely thought they were in, who genuinely thought they were on the guest list, who had some relationship and interaction with Jesus, but who are sadly mistaken. And that might cause us to worry. What if I'm one of these people? I, I think I'm a Christian. I'm trying to live for Jesus, but what if it's not enough? But if that's you and you're worried today, let me tell you, we need to see very clearly the identity of the people who are on the outside. And we can see that from verse 27. Jesus says to them, I don't know who you are or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And it's in those words that we see what's truly going on. You see, Jesus here is actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 6 which you can read in your own time. That is a psalm of David, a psalm of the true king. And in that psalm, he is talking about his enemies, those who who refuse to accept him as king, those who've rebelled against him and tried to usurp him and tried to harm him. And so now the identity of these excluded people starts to come into view. Remember where Jesus is going. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to David's city, and he's going to the home court of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In that city, uh, these people are going to oppose him, arrest him, beat him, and kill him. Did you notice the intriguing detail in the way Jesus speaks to the excluded people? He says, I don't know you or where you come from. Jesus has Jerusalem in mind all the way through this passage, the city of David, the place of God's temple, the place where all of God's plans and promises have up to this point been centered. And in that very place, as the king returns to his temple, the current rulers of that place will oppose him and kill him. And all the time they do that, they will assume that they are working for the kingdom of God. They will assume that because they live in David's city, because of where they're from, therefore they are David's people. They have all the Bible knowledge. They come from the right nation. They live and work right in the center of the people of God in Jerusalem itself. Surely if anyone is on the guest list in the kingdom of God, it's them. And yet when they come to the kingdom of God, 
they see the one they killed, David's heir, standing at the door of God's banquet. And so their claim to have eaten and drunk with him and heard his teaching seems rather desperate and rings rather hollow. Yeah, they did hear his teaching, but they rejected it. Yes, they did eat with him, but they rejected him. In a sense, they had some relationship with Jesus, but they did not recognize his authority as their king, and they did not put their trust in him. Quite the opposite. In fact, they are at heart rebels against the king. They are, in David's words and Jesus' words, workers of evil. And so look at what Jesus says next, verse 28. There'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. All of the people in Jesus' hearing would assume that because of their heritage, because they were the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then they were surely on the guest list for the kingdom of God. They would have assumed that they were on the side of the prophets, that they were the good guys in Israel's story. They had all the right doctrines, they did all the right religious rituals, they tithed, they did good works. But as Jesus will go on to say next week, because they oppose him, the true king, they are actually the latest in a long line of people who killed the prophets, no matter what mask of religious conformity they wear. And so they reveal themselves at heart to be enemies of the people of God, outside of his family, unwelcome at his banquet. Now at this point, we might be tempted to breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, it's the Pharisees. Oh, that's all right then. It isn't me. But we mustn't be deceived. Very sadly, it is still possible within Christian circles to wear the mask of religious hypocrisy. To espouse the right doctrines, to do the right things, to eat and drink with, the God, with God's people and hear God's word week by week and yet to oppose Jesus and his rule in our hearts. Let me be clear here, I'm not talking about the usual Christian experience of committing sin and then sort of repenting of it. We all sin, we all have moments of rebellion, and Jesus has already said that a life of continual repentance is the key to authentic Christian discipleship. The experience of feeling and knowing you're a sinner and crying out to God for mercy and grace, well, that's the normal Christian life. But it might be that for all you say the right things and do the right things in your heart, you're resisting the rule of Jesus in a much more fundamental way. You hear Bible teaching, but you, you stop listening. It challenges your way of life so much that you've just started to block it out. You're holding on to sin, you're cherishing it, and you're not repenting of it, and you know you're beginning to drift away. And you've started thinking to yourself, but it's okay, because I go to a good church, you know, I'm a regular, actually. I serve on a team. I still believe all the same things. And anyway, I come from a good Christian family and I have good Christian friends. If that's you, if you know that's the narrative that's going on in your heart, then please hear Jesus' warning very clearly. He says, make every effort to enter by the narrow door. And by that, he doesn't mean do lots more Christian things that will earn you your place. No, that's, that's what the Pharisees were doing. What he means is the effort he wants is get to know me. Get to know Jesus in his word. Learn to trust him. Submit yourself to him as your king. Repent of long-cherished sins. Align your life with his. And ask someone in our church family for help. 
Ask your growth group leader. Ask your real food leader or your youth leader. Ask one of the elders. Don't be deceived into thinking that mere outward conformity to Christian things can make up for a heart that does not trust Jesus, which opposes his rule and cherishes sin. Do not be deceived into thinking that belonging to a good church is an automatic ticket to the kingdom of God. Make every effort of taking hold of the means God has given you to get to know his son Jesus and to learn to trust him. And do it now. Don't decide you'll get serious about Jesus once life has calmed down a bit or once you've finished your degree or once you get settled in your career or once the children have left home and you have a bit more time. You do not want to be late with the banquet, all dressed up with nowhere to go. You do not want to say to Jesus, but hang on, we went to Moreland's church. We're from a Christian family. We took communion. We heard the sermons and hear his words come back. Yes, but I, I don't know who you are or where you come from. That's the bad news this morning. That is the gracious warning Jesus is giving us. But here's the good news and our final point. The door is open. Finally, Jesus gives the answer to the question he was asked at the beginning. The question asked, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus has turned that question back on him and back on everyone listening and back on us today and said, listen, don't worry about everyone else. Are you saved? Are you listening to me? Are you repenting of your sin? Are you putting your trust in me? Are you running to the lifeboats? But now he answers the question directly. Will only a few be saved? Well, look at verse 29. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. You see, Jesus has been talking about a narrow door and urging us to make sure we go through it. But now, having shone the spotlight into our hearts, he pulls back the camera, widens the angle, zooms all the way out and shows us what happens when people do that. There is this great ingathering, this enormous influx of people. It's as if the narrow door has been replaced by four huge city gates at every compass point and people are flooding in for the feast. Will only a few be saved? No. There's going to be countless millions of people. And notice where they're coming in from, east and west and north and south. Now, if you think back to the history of Israel, if you know the Old Testament at all, you'll know that people coming into God's nation from different points of the compass was not very often good news. People from the north meant the Assyrians were coming. People from the south meant the Philistines were coming. People from the west meant the Egyptians were coming. People from the east meant the Babylonians were coming. These were the places where the enemies of God were from. When the cry came up, people are coming from north and south and east and west, that was time to shut the gates and be afraid. But now look, the enemies of God are laying down their weapons and flooding into the kingdom of God, not to attack the city gates with cries of war, but to pass through them with songs of praise, to sit down at the dinner table and to eat with their king. And as Jesus says, a great reversal has happened. Those who were first, who took the places of status and authority and honour in Jerusalem, the self-righteous, the proud, the religious hypocrites are now last on the outside looking in. And those who are last, who were once rebels against the king, enemies of God's people, are counted as honoured guests at the banquet of God. 
they are at rest, they are healed, they are satisfied, they're right with God, they're friends of Jesus, known by him. So we might find ourselves asking, well, when? When is this happening? When will this going to happen? From our own viewpoint, it might not look like it's happening yet. Things might seem fragile and weak in our world and in our church and in our hearts too. We are still beset by fears and anxieties and sins and troubles. But let's look from another viewpoint. Let's take God's view on this and let's ask the question, where are you from? I mean, like geographically, physically, where are you from? I'm from Blackpool. I look around the room and I see people from Kandal and Lebanon and uh, Zimbabwe and Northern Ireland and Hong Kong and Birmingham of all places. I see people even here in the northwest of England from north and south and east and west. If Jerusalem was once the centre of the world, the, the locus of God's plans and purposes, then we've come in from absolutely miles away. And not only where have you come from geographically, but where have you come from spiritually? What have you got in your past, and perhaps not your far past, that shows you once have been an enemy of God? That there was a time when you thoroughly, fundamentally resisted God's rule, ignored his teaching, refused to listen, cherished sin in your heart, and now something major, something fundamental has changed inside of you. Yes, of course you continue to sin. Yes, you're still beset by fears and struggles. But now you do so as someone who submits to Jesus as your king who listens to God's word and wants to change. And as you look back on your life, you think, actually, I'm not quite the person I was five years ago. Something has changed inside me. All of that proves to us, as we look at it through God's, God's eyes, that the door is wide open. The gates of the city have been flung wide and the influx has already begun. The yeast is working its way through the dough. The world tree is growing from the mustard seed and it continues. All over the world, people are coming in day by day as God's powerful word goes out, north, south, east and west, to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Well, let's conclude and let me speak to three different groups of people who might be listening in. Firstly, it might be that you're not a Christian and that in fact you are put off by the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus. You don't like the narrowness of it. You don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way. And so for the time being, you want to keep your options open. If that's you, Jesus would want you to see where you are. You're in the, rest, the restaurant of the Titanic, demanding the right to choose your dessert while the whole ship goes down in flames. Open your eyes and look around you at this world. Look inside at your own heart and tell me things are going well. No, this is a world sinking under judgment and Jesus is calmly, kindly, patiently, graciously showing you the way to the lifeboats. Let go of your pride. Stop being offended that there is only one way to be saved and rejoice that there is any way at all. Come to Jesus and take your seat at the table. Secondly, it might be that today you're somebody who's been convicted that you have been wearing the mask of religious respectability but you're not really trusting in Jesus for yourself. You're not really listening. You're not really fighting your sin. But somehow you've started to feel a little bit smug that you're a Christian. You've started looking down on the world out there. You've started taking your salvation for granted, sinning freely and think, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm forgiven. 
you might start be thinking about, yes, but I'm a member of a good church. Yes, but I'm from a Christian family and thinking that that makes everything okay. If that's you, Jesus calls you to repent. Repent of your pride. Stop walking away from Jesus and ask for help. Ask others in the church to help you and say to Jesus, I want to know you. And for all my religion, all my doctrine, all my church activity, I don't think I've really got to know you yet. Please help me put my trust in you. Come to Jesus and take your seat at the table. Finally, what if we are feeling weak and small, fragile and frail as people or as a church? What if we're very aware of our sin and our failings? Well, let me say again, that is the normal experience of the Christian life and of life as the people of God. That is not abnormal or anything to be worried about. In fact, it's a good sign in a way because it keeps us humble and prayerful and dependent. But if that's you, Jesus would want you to see things from his eyes. See where you've come from. See how people have come from north and south and east and west and taken their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And look at your own life. Ask others to help you see it if you can't see it. See that you've been brought from being an enemy of God to being an honoured guest in his house all by the grace of Jesus and what he's done for you by his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And so go and call others to come in. Your weakness and sin and failing does not disqualify you from this role. In fact, they qualify you for it. You were once an enemy of God, now you're made his honoured guest and please don't take this the wrong way but if Jesus can find a seat for you at his table he can find a seat for anyone right so go and call others to come and know Jesus and pray that those you love will be seated with you at the banquet and not left outside and know this that even with your weakness and sin and fragility and failing that one day you're going to come to Jesus and he will say to you well done my good and faithful servant, your name's on the list, your place is laid for you. Come and sit down, the feast is about to begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and confess before you that we have been your enemies, that we've been people who've resisted your rule, and ignored your teaching. And perhaps we've even done that while claiming your name. And we're sorry. Please forgive us and thank you that our forgiveness can be met with your grace. That there is a way. That Jesus' death and resurrection have made it possible for even people like us to be forgiven. To be restored. And to have confidence that we will one day receive a warm welcome into the feast in the kingdom of God. And we pray for our city, we pray for our world. We thank you that people are coming in from north and south and east and west. And we pray that many more would come and lay down their pride and come to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and come and join us at the banquet. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.